0: I'm Emery Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard! Episode 9 It's mid-morning by the time the pod clears out and Wenda and I are on our own. We start behind the pod outside my window. There's precious little to see. The constant wind and shifting sands means that any evidence of digging is long gone by the time we get around to looking for it. Nothing much here, I sigh, turning my gaze up toward the ridge and squinting. You're sure about what you heard? Wenda asks. Yeah, I thought I was dreaming about the ocean, but it was the rhythm of the sound triggering the mental image, I explain. Wenda looks thoughtful. It's pretty quiet at night, she says. Maybe you heard digging further away sound can do funny things up here. I look up toward the ridge again. Why do I have a feeling I'm about to be invited on a hike, Wenda mutters, but she's already marching off in the direction of the trail, about a thousand feet behind our pod and at the outside edge residential. I hurry to catch up to her. We don't bother to try to hide where we're going. It's not unheard of for Ionians to hike the ridge in the daytime, and we look like any other friends out for a recreational walk. It's a nice day for it. The wind is slowed and it's a calm, temperate day, for Iona at least, and it's not a terribly difficult hike. The path has enough gravel to be easier to walk than the sandy flats, and although the initial ascent is steep, once we reach the ridge itself it levels out and becomes an easy stroll. The trek up to the top of the ridge is steeper than I remember. By the time we reach the crest I'm panting and Wenda is doing only slightly better. Damn medical leave, I wheeze as we stop to catch our breath. I was in better shape before. "'Of course you were,' Wenda replies with a grin. "'We wait a few more minutes, and once we're feeling relatively normal again, "'we start following the ridgeline. "'What are we supposed to be looking for up here?' Wenda asks. "'Well, it could be a couple of things,' I say. "'The person I saw was a few hundred feet further along the trail, "'so not very far from where we are now. "'And they disappeared quickly, as if they had taken a side trail "'running down the back edge of the ridge. "'So possibly another trail or evidence that someone left the ridgeline "'and climbed down on their own?' We walk slowly and quietly at first, taking our time to study the terrain. It only takes a few minutes to work out that there are no side trails. The far side of the ridge is even steeper than the one I can see from my window, and covered in sharp rocks and thorny scrub. As an experiment, Wenda and I try to edge down from the ridgeline at a partial clearing near where I think my mystery person disappeared. I can't even imagine someone climbing down here at night, Wenda mutters, yanking the hem of her jacket out of the clutches of a thorn bush. Between the rocks, the slope, and these damn bushes, I feel like I'm under attack from all directions, and I'm able to see them before I run into them. In the dark, this must be like a minefield. Looking around, I realize I'm stuck between two sharp rocks and the biggest thorn bush I've ever seen, pinned in like some demented game of Twister. You're totally right, and I'm totally wrong, I say as we both struggle to extricate ourselves and make it back to the ridgeline. Climbing down there makes absolutely no sense. Did they fall? Wenda asks with a snicker. (laughs) It's kind of funny, but it's actually a lot more likely than your initial thought. Your mystery person might not only be mysterious, but also clumsy. Maybe not so much clumsy as ill-prepared, I say. I didn't see any lights on them, and one misstep would be all it would take. Why would somebody come up here without a handlight? Asks Wenda, finally reaching the ridgeline and shaking burrs out of her clothing. That seems really stupid. We all know these little moons aren't bright enough to see by. We do, but somebody who wasn't all that familiar with Iona might not. I say, a good full moon on home world, for example, can be almost as bright as a flashlight. Bartizel too, apparently. Wendy says Mabry talks all the time about how much she misses the Bartizelian moonlight. My mind is racing as I drag myself back up onto the ridge. I look out over Iona Town. Our pod lies closest to where we stand now. Its rear-facing windows looking out onto the rise. Iona's other residential pods expand out into the distance in a horseshoe shape, snuggling the town's civic buildings in the middle. From here, I can see clearly not just our own pod, but half a dozen others. I can also make out the storage warrens off to the west, and in the center of town, I recognize the presentation theater. The top floor of clinical sparkles blue in the distance beyond it, and at the further edge of town, I can see the landing pads. Two silver and white skiffs sit there now, contrasting dramatically with the red-brown cliffs rising up just behind them. Wendis stands beside me. Ah, you can see a lot from here. Maybe that's why the mystery person was up here, I propose. Maybe they were trying to keep an eye on something. But what? I mean, you can see the residential pods and the theater and storage, but you can't really see what's going on inside. Maybe if someone was outside and you wanted to keep tabs on them? Maybe if someone was outside digging? Oh, well, Wow. Wenda nods appreciatively, looking around, then follows with a more emphatic, "'Oh, wow!' Suddenly, she's scampering and sliding down the sandy near side of the ridge in front of us. She stops about ten feet off the ridgeline above a dense thicket of thorny shrubs. "'Do you see this?' she calls back to me. I almost start laughing. There's a recent, decidedly human-sized deformation in the vegetation, as if a rolling body may have hit it at full speed.' "'Waving like a flag from the bramble is a strip of fabric "'that was most likely ripped off whatever was being worn "'by the unfortunate individual who collided with it. Wenda takes possession of the fabric "'and stuffs it inside her vest pocket. "'I don't think there's a way back up from here,' "'she says, looking around. "'It's too sandy to climb. "'I'm going to try to find a way down. "'That's probably what the mystery person did too,' I surmise. "'Keep your eyes peeled on the way down "'and I'll meet you back at the pod.' "'Even though I hurry along the ridgeline back to the trail, Wenda beats me home by several minutes.' It wasn't too hard to stay on my feet once I knew where I wanted to go, she explains. There's more sand on that side and fewer rocks and less scrub. It wasn't exactly a stroll on the beach, but it wasn't as difficult to navigate as the backside. Even though the pod is deserted, we head to my room to investigate our find. Wenda hands it over to me as soon as I shut the door. So this is all that's standing between me and accusations of delirium, I say, running the fabric through my fingers. It's about four inches long and maybe an inch wide at its widest point, tapering down to maybe a quarter inch near the base of the tear. It's stitched along one edge and looks like it may have come from a hemline or a sleeve, but it's definitely not from one of Iona's typical service outfits or anything else typical to this planet. It's a fine woven fabric we seldom see here on Iona, and the color is an impressive deep purple. It's quite distinctive, Wendis says. Someone wearing an entire garment made from this would stand out. We should consider that it might not be from clothing at all, but maybe a covering, a bag, or something else. We don't really know what it is. For now, it's only a piece of cloth that really gives us no indication of who it belongs to or what it came from. But I know that it's a clue. I give it one more look before I tuck it into my treasure box on my desk next to the small seed packet I've kept safely hidden away there for the last eight years. "'At least I know I wasn't hallucinating last night. That's a relief,' I say with a smile, but when I turn toward her, Wenda's face is serious. "'I think you should report this,' she says. "'Someone's skulking around outside our pod in the middle of the night is not normal. They could be planning some kind of harm.' I shudder involuntarily, but I do my best to keep my wits about me. Surely it's not as risky as Wenda believes.' Who would I report it to? The operations security chief? I ask with a sharp, baleful laugh. (laughs) She already pulled a weapon on me once before. She's at the top of my suspects list. Well, to start, I think you should tell Graham, Wenda says. I feel a bit of illogical ire drop in me. He's not in charge here, I mutter, but Wenda isn't having it. He's as close to a coordinator as we have right now, she says. He's helped us in the past, no matter how Fanny might feel. He's not some spooky bad guy, and he does care. "'Well, I don't know about that,' I say, feeling guilty and petulant at the same time. "'He does, and you know it,' Wenda contends. "'But that's almost beside the point. "'This is a very strange time on Iona. "'He'll want to know about this, and he should know about it. "'You need to tell him.' "'I sigh. "'I'll think about it,' I say, but I already know the decision is made. "'If my choices really are to tell him or to tell Fallon March, "'it's not much of a contest. "'Maybe you should tell them both.' (laughs) "'What?' I half-laugh, thinking Wenda must be kidding. She's dead serious. You've said it before. We really don't know why she's here, Wenda says. It's obviously not to investigate the warehouse accident. We know the company wouldn't send her here without purpose or just to try to make us all feel better. She's here for a specific reason. We don't know what that reason is. Well, we're not going to get that from me chatting her up about a mysterious individual doing midnight yard work outside my window, I say. No, but we might get a few pieces of the puzzle, Wenda replies. At this point, I think that's where we have to start. And who knows, involving her in something like this might get her more engaged. Once she stops seeing us as threatening hillbillies, we might have a chance to make an impression on her that could enhance our standing with the company, and we're going to need all the allies we can get. Wenda, as always, presenting the big picture. She's right, as usual. All right, all right, I'll pay a visit to Graham and let him weigh in on how to involve the security chief, I say. Winda nods her approval, and I head out into the Ionian afternoon. I feel heavy and anxious. My quiet, predictable life on Iona has changed so much in the last few weeks. I would never recognize it were I not in the middle of it. But at the same time, I feel more connected with this little planet, its values, and its people than ever before. If the loss of my anonymity is the price for Iona becoming an independent home world. It suddenly doesn't seem like too much to pay. I hail Graham on his private channel first. Can I talk with you about something in person, I ask? He's distant at first and sounds vaguely annoyed. Uh, Can it wait? I'm in the middle of a data run. Not this time, I say. I might be filing a report with Fallon March after I talk to you, and I'd really appreciate your advice. There's a pause. He seems genuinely surprised. I can hear a ruckus in the background consistent with the usual activity level in goods, plus Arden's voice shouting instructions above the din. Graham sighs heavily into his mic. He sounds so tired. I can almost see his drooping shoulders and furrowed brow. Uh, it's a bit chaotic in here at the moment. Uh, let's find a spot to meet at the theater. I can be there in about 15 minutes, he says. Perfect, I say, and tap out of the channel. I'm grateful for the change of venue. Arden won't be happy about this either, and dealing with his angst over my safety is something I would prefer to put off until later, maybe much later. This way, I can talk this over with Graham in a reasonably calm manner, and we can strategize how to involve the company's security chief. For all the logic of Wenda's argument in favor of it, I'm still not entirely convinced and really want Graham's cool rationality applied without the typical balls-to-the-wall approach of his temporary office mate. Chapter 18 The Presentation Theater was the first building constructed on Iona. When more people arrived and it could no longer meet all the needs of the population, new construction spiraled out around it until it became the center of what is now our town square. I have always liked its fanciful wooden trim mixed with its high-tech 3D printed polymer inner shell. Although it does house a theater, the name is somewhat of a misnomer. It's really a three-story labyrinth of rooms and passageways that originally served as shelter, storage, and workspace for the 30 or so pioneers who founded Iona Station. As Iona settled into its role as an independent service planet, the interior of the theater was refashioned to meet a variety of needs ranging from classrooms and meeting spaces to specialized workshops. When Ionians briefly toyed with the idea of a debt-based economy, a few shops sprang up on its lower level. That experiment didn't last very long, but the shops are still here, largely unchanged except for the presence of new-made tables and chairs. The walls remain painted in bright, cheerful colors, occasionally interrupted by the slightly sad presence of empty shelves. Each of these rooms also has a door that opens to the outside and floor-to-ceiling windows that look out onto the plaza, but the old acrylic is yellowed and hazed over by grit and years of scratches from my own is blowing sand. Looking through them becomes a bit more like watching a flickering film instead of the bustling life of a planet on the edge of becoming a home world. But I like these rooms for their contradictions, and I walk down the dimly lit hallway that leads to Shop Row. I choose one of the smaller spaces for our meeting, it's painted in bright candy colors, and one wall is decorated with a mural of a mermaid swimming in a sparkling sapphire sea holding a lollipop in her hand. This is the lore and color palette of homeworld, and nowhere else. I wonder if the long-ago artist was a homeworlder who regretted the decision to come to the little desert planet with weak sunlight so far away, or if they were indulging in cheerful nostalgia and just trying to share a fun bit of their origin with their newfound family of explorers. I sit in front of the less scratched of the two windows in one of the painfully out-of-context utilitarian chairs, waiting for Graham. Soon, I spot him walking toward the theater. His expression is flat and dull. He's squinting against a sudden wind gust in a way that amplifies his joyless demeanor. I feel a small pang of sadness that this Graham, so different from the Graham I got to know, is the one who's coming to meet with me. I miss that other Graham. I step out of the door and wave to him. He sees me and waves back and hurries his pace across the square. We retreat into the mermaid room and sit down at the small table. His expression shifts to one of concern. "'What's wrong?' he asks. "'You seem upset.' "'I'm all right. I'm just a bit freaked out,' I explain. "'Some odd things happened last night. I heard digging outside the pod, just outside my window, and then I saw someone up on the ridge. It wasn't anyone from our pod, and there was no reason for anyone to be out there, so I'm worried someone was up to no good.' Graham scowls. "'Did you check out the surroundings this morning?' he asks. "'Was anything amiss?' Wenda and I had a look around. There was some evidence that someone had been there, but we didn't find any clues as to what they might have been doing. I know it sounds like nothing, but it's so unusual that it's got me concerned. It doesn't sound like nothing to me. Is this what you're thinking about reporting to March? Well, Wenda thought it would be a good idea, I say. Personally, I'm not sure. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Graham sits back and rubs his face with a sigh. I've had to work fairly closely with her over the last few weeks, and I just don't think she'll care, he says glumly. She's focused on some kind of agenda that no one seems to be able to identify, as you and Arden figured out. She's not really interested in anything or anyone on Iona. Well, Wenda's idea was that this might be connected to March somehow. She thought if I reported it as a potential security issue, she might show her hand or say something that would give us a clue as to what her agenda actually was, I explained. That would be the gold in this situation. Graham nods. His eyes are distant and calculating. Maybe there's a more subtle way to do that, he says. Let's make sure our local security people are informed first, though. Let's find Mabry and have a chat with her. Mabry's workspace in the local security building is essentially a large pile of electronics in varying stages of dissection, decorated with posters and books about her other compelling interest, military and weapons history. She's an almost comical sight, seated behind a semicircular table, wearing a piece of headgear that includes a headlamp, a magnifying eyepiece, a set of small tools, and an antistatic cloth dangling from one side. The effect is like some kind of charming young cybernetic one-eyed elf. Her response to my story is anything but comical, however. She pulls off her headgear and runs her hand through her short cropped hair. The digging is weird, but that doesn't worry me as much as someone up on the ridge in the middle of the night, she says. We've had a couple of other reports about unusual activity up there, and it all seems to dovetail with the security chief's arrival. At the very least, it's a safety issue. That area is dangerous at night without high-grade lighting. And at worst, there may be something going on that someone wants to keep hidden from everybody, including local security. I think it's worth reporting. I can't wait to hear what she has to say about this, I say. The answer, as it would turn out, would be nothing. Graham's efforts to raise her on the general channel predictably yield no results, and his hails to her private channel go unanswered as well. I don't think she uses her headset at all, complains Mabry. It took days to get her to agree to even have it calibrated to Ionian channels, and the only reason she did it was because it's actually one of her own security requirements. I'm the one who had to remind her of that. She couldn't get her head around why she might want to be accessible to anybody here. You'd have thought she was a star on a spa vacation and we were just irritating members of a fan club. I've still never seen her wear it. We should just walk over to Polly's office and try to catch her in person, I suggest, as long as you're prepared for a potential firefight. Graham snorts. She tried to bring that thing into the pod with her, he says. I wouldn't let her. She didn't like that at all. Come on, then, Mabry says. Safety in numbers. We walk the short distance to intake. Just as during my first encounter with Fallon March, the lobby is empty and quiet, but the lights are on in Polly's office, creating a sparkling pool of light in the hallway. Chief March? Graham calls out. We'd like to have a word with you. We're greeted with silence. The three of us exchange looks and continue moving down the hallway as casually as possible. Chief March, are you here? I say loudly, but still no response. There's a scheduler holo in that office, says Mabry. If she's not here, we can check that to see if we can get an idea of when we might catch her. I nod my approval and we continue down the hallway to Polly's office. When we round the corner, I'm relieved to see it actually empty rather than occupied by someone ready to fire on us. The scheduler is built into the desk. Mabry accesses it and begins scrolling through the data, but soon she's hit another dead end. I'm not finding any clues as to where she might be now, she says. There are only a few scattered entries and they seem really random. A lot of them just say report, followed by a jumble of numbers and initials. We should probably just leave it for another time, I say. She isn't here and we don't seem to have any other way to get in touch with her. Well, we could go really old school and leave her a note to let her know that we're looking for her, suggests Mabry. If she doesn't respond to that, then maybe Graham can catch her later tonight at the pod and set up a meeting for us. That's a great idea, I say. Polly loved paper. There's bound to be some in this office somewhere. Let's write her a note. The first drawer I open has March's hefty firearm in it, which manages to look menacing even without anyone pointing it at me. I close the drawer quickly and move on to the next. The remaining drawers are empty, except for half a dozen packages of stale Snacks Energy cookies and some crumbs. No paper, I report, although I may have discovered the source of Polly's endless digestive problems. Where did he keep his supplies? Graham asks, stepping over to credenza along the far wall and sliding the front panel open. Immediately, something heavy falls out with a thud, followed by an almost musical clatter. What the hell? I hear him exclaim. Mabry and I both turn to look. Graham is crouching on the floor. All around him are silvery-blue metallic spheres about the size of an egg. There must be a dozen of them on the floor, and more threatening to roll out of the bag that contained them, now trailing out of the front of the credenza. Graham is struggling to put the bag to rights, but as Mabry and I come around the desk to help, he shouts, Stay back! Don't touch them! I know what they are! We both freeze. Should we call someone? I ask, but Graham shakes his head. He's pulled the bag completely out of the credenza and placed it carefully on the floor. I can see that it's more of a wrap, really, like a large shawl tied up into a makeshift carry-all. He's gathering the spheres one by one and placing them into its center, along with a handful that managed to stay put when the credenza was open. "'What are they?' Asked Mabry. "'Explosives?' "'No, they won't explode, but they can break. That would be just as devastating as an explosion. I'll tell you about them as soon as they're secure.' Graham works quickly but carefully, and in just a few minutes all the spheres have been retrieved in place. He pulls up the edges of the wrap and ties it securely. We're all so focused on his task that we don't hear the sound of someone running down the hall until Fallon March bursts through the doorway. What are you doing, she shouts, pointing at Graham. Leave that alone. Those are my personal effects. Why are you here going through my things? All of you have some explaining to do. I'm prepared to reply, but instead I'm mesmerized by Graham's reaction. He looks at Fallon March with an expression I've never seen, his face darkening and eyes snapping with anger. He makes eye contact with March and holds it, not even blinking, as he stands up slowly and straightens to his imposing full height. "'On the contrary,' he says in a voice that underscores his barely restrained fury. "'If these are your personal effects, I'll need to have you removed from Iona and handed over to law enforcement as soon as possible for possession of a banned and highly dangerous substance.' If it turns out you have official authorization to have these objects, you'll be charged with a high crime for not stating it on your incoming manifest and securing it in an appropriate manner. Regardless, you will be confined to your quarters starting immediately until I get some answers. Mapry, would you please take Chief March back to her room at my pod? Make sure she's chipped and unable to leave the premises. March's mouth opens and closes as if she's searching for something to say, but in the end she chooses to remain silent. Mabry takes a few seconds to recover from the shock of the scene and steps forward. "'Come with me, please,' she says. March again looks like she might object, but apparently thinks better of it and begins to follow Mabry out. In the doorway, she pauses and looks back at Graham with an expression that is half irritation, half disgust. "'It's not what you think,' she snaps impatiently. Graham takes a deep breath to steady himself. "'I can't imagine what you're doing with these, so that really goes without saying.' I'll be questioning you formally in front of witnesses tomorrow. I suggest you not waste the intervening time making up some stupid lie about this because I know exactly what these are, what they are capable of, and more of the rules and regulations governing their handle than you ever could. You will want to tell me the truth because you are in serious trouble and I can either potentially help you mitigate it or make it worse for you. Now go. He turns his back on her then, looking down pointedly at the threatening package at his feet, and then back up at me as Mabry guides March out of the room. "'We have to do something with this,' he says, gesturing at the bundle as their footsteps fade away down the hall. "'We can't leave it here, and it shouldn't be in any active pot or public space. It needs to be somewhere secure where people will not disturb it for any reason.' My eyebrows go up. "'I think I know just the place,' I say.' We have a room in our pods, Warren, that would fit the bill, but you have to tell me, what are those things? Why are they so dangerous? If this is what I think it is, and I'm certain it is, these spheres contain one of the developmental versions of blue, one that doesn't have to be consumed to work. Just touch the stuff and the stasis process begins. It was abandoned early on, as too difficult to control. You still feel like having it in your storage, Warren? I nod yes. I know I want to know more, particularly how he knows so much about this material and why, if it's so incredibly dangerous, it's been packaged in containers that could break so easily. And of course, he'll have to know more about what's already in that storage room. But right now I'm looking at Graham cradling this perilous bundle in his arms, and I'm only further traumatized as it sinks in that the fabric of the wrap is a rich, luxurious purple, a material that we almost never see on Iona. We first go to Goods to procure a hover-flat so Graham doesn't have to carry the bundle clutch to his chest, and then make our way to the pod's storage warren with the flat floating just ahead of us. As we walk, I explain to him what's already in Number 8 and the precautions we've taken to secure it. He takes it all in silently, his expression growing more melancholy with each revelation. "'You weren't planning on telling me this, were you?' he finally says. "'It's more a statement than a question.' No, I say, you haven't been in a good place personally for quite some time now, and it's obvious that you're under a lot of strain. This would have just been one more log on the fire, and we thought we could figure everything out on our own. It's not a lie, per se, but he sees the subtext anyway, despite my leaving it unsaid. You don't trust me, he says. His voice isn't accusatory, just oddly sad. I sigh. I don't know, I reply. Who I trust seems to change every day. "'Well, I understand why you feel that way,' he says quietly, "'but I'm not your enemy, Faith. I swear it to you.' "'I look at him, then, his somber expression, his dejected posture. "'I'm sympathetic. Truly, I am, but we're past the point of pleasantries "'for the sake of preserving the appearance of normalcy. "'I don't think you're my enemy,' I say. "'I just don't feel like I know who you are right now.' "'He doesn't answer immediately.' The way his mouth collapses into a thin line and the crease that appears between his eyebrows suggests he's weighing his options, which also doesn't fill me with confidence in him. We walk to the storage warren in silence. Once inside number eight, I send the hover flat to the far end of the room, as distant from both the door and the crate as I can get it, and program it to simply descend to the floor and power off rather than going through its usual cargo delivery and return cycle. We don't want to move the spheres any more than we absolutely have to. Graham walks over to the crate and looks at it solemnly. So this is it, he asks. It looks like a million other company crates. That's the same thing Arden said, I respond. Nothing unusual about it in any respect, at least that we can see from the outside. And as far as he can remember, the crate that exploded in warehousing was exactly the same. How are you going to open it, he asks. Are you even going to try? Maybe he wants to do a scan before we even think about opening it. If we decide to open it, we'll probably have to get it out of here first and into some kind of contained area just in case the same thing happens. Are there places like that on Iona? Graham asks. It doesn't really seem in line with the kind of work you do here. Well, not formal construction like you'd find on Homeworld, I explain. There are a lot of large sturdy caves and tunnels in the ridge formations north of town, though, and we do have the technology to create barriers to both chemical and human intrusion that should keep it secure once we know what we're dealing with. I expect something like that will be the solution. Graham gives the hover flat with its delicate cargo a long look. That's the kind of place those things should be, he says, locked up tight where they can't hurt anyone. We step out of number eight into the hallway. I close and secure the door. Then I hail the rest of the team to schedule a meeting at my pod in a few hours. This time, Graham will be there. Eat with us, I urge in a sudden fit of empathy, but he shakes his head. I need to get back to my pod to try to figure out how I'm going to address the Fallon situation, he says. I'll see you at the meeting, though. His refusal makes me feel even lower. It must show on my face because as we reach the Warren's entry, he pulls me into a spontaneous hug. I know there's no point in telling you not to worry because you're going to anyway. And there's no point in telling you to be strong because you already are, he says. I'll ask you instead to have confidence. We're going to get this figured out. I'm going to get this figured out. "'And I'll ask you not to take it all on as yours alone,' I respond. "'It's breaking you apart. We can all see it. "'We need to trust each other more, me included.' "'He pulls back and looks into my face, "'his gray eyes luminous in the dying light of Iona's early dusk. "'We all have our secrets,' he says softly. "'Secrets make trust difficult.' "'I don't really know what secrets Graham is referring to, "'but my own mind goes immediately to Arden, "'the mystery conversation, the secret job, the unrevealed details.' And I remember then that I have secrets from him, everything that has happened today and last night, none of which I've had the opportunity or the inclination to tell him about. Graham is right. We're all keeping secrets from each other on some level, myself, not least of all. I believe we can change that, I say. We can start tonight. He smiles and squeezes my hand as he releases me from the hug. You live up to your name, he says. I hope we all turn out to be worth the faith you have in us. Because really, we're just human beings, and we're all flawed. Faith and flaws are not mutually exclusive, I quip, smiling in spite of myself. Graham finally lets out a chuckle, and we part, if not entirely friends, then at least feeling a little bit better about each other. In our few minutes of free time between the evening meal and our team meeting, Mabry drops into my holo her report detailing Fallon March's formal arrest and detainment. "'Graham wants to interrogate her tomorrow, and he expects you to be there,' she says. "'Good luck getting anything out of her. "'She's mad as forty stingers and as tight-lipped as a dead drone. "'She didn't say a word to me after we left intake.'" "'What's that about?' asks Arden, craning his neck toward my holo to see what we're discussing. "'It's the perfect opportunity for me to fill everyone in on the events of the day "'and to explain to him the driving factors from the prior evening. "'With each detail, he becomes increasingly agitated, "'and when I describe the scene in Fallon March's office, he can restrain himself no longer.'" I don't know whether to be more outraged that she had these things or that Graham knew exactly what they were, he says, his exasperation clear. That means he's handled them before. No one here should be able to say that. Are you sure his response was genuine? What the hell does that mean, I ask? I had expected Arden to be upset, but never to react this intensely. Seems a bit convenient, don't you think? These deadly things just happen to be in the office, barely hidden, and he happens to stumble on their hiding place? Was this possibly a ruse of some kind? After all, that office was his before it was Fallon March's. What if he knew they were there all along? Oh, Arden, do you really think he would do something like this when it could have endangered Mabry and me? I ask. Suppose one of those things had broken, we'd all have been exposed. You're not making any sense. What if they're not real? What? I'm incredulous. "'What if the spheres you've found don't contain anything deadly at all "'and Graham just wanted you to think they do?' Arden's expression is bordering on wildly angry. "'And what would be his motivation for that?' "'I ask in my calmest voice. "'Unfortunately, I already suspect what he's about to say. "'To try to get into your good graces, obviously. "'To give him an end to become your great rescuer or problem-solver or superhero. "'To make you believe he's on your side.' He responds, standing up and beginning to pace in front of the fireplace. This facet of Arden I remember from our time on Homeworld. When he became like this, there was no reasoning with him. Fortunately, I don't have to. Wenda steps in. Wait a minute, she says sternly. There are no sides here. We're all working toward the same thing. Unless you're thinking about a different competition entirely, and truly, I think you might be. She levels her gaze at Arden, and then at me. For once in his life, Arden is rendered speechless. He looks from Wenda to me and back again silently for a few seconds, then abruptly says, I have to take a walk, and leaves the common room through the kitchen. I hear the rear door slam behind him as he strides out into the courtyard. I look at Wenda, who raises her eyebrows at me and then looks pointedly toward the courtyard. I catch her meaning and go after him. By the time I reach the door, he's already passed through the courtyard, and it's a hundred feet beyond its wall. Arden, wait, I shout, but he gives no indication that he's heard me and keeps walking. Something rises up in me, a weird combination of emotions battling for prominence. Anger, sadness, disgust, frustration, disappointment, fury. I run after him, sprinting across the sand in the dark, stumbling more than once under the dim Ionian moonlight. But I catch up with him, and when I do, I'm in no mood to make nice. Stop walking and turn around, goddammit! I order. He does, but his face is expressionless and he doesn't speak. He simply stares at me. What are you doing? I finally ask. I don't owe you an explanation, he says, and turns to walk away. I snap. No, you don't owe me an explanation, I spit out with fury. You owe me eight years. Eight long, cold, awful years. Because you decided you knew what was best for me. Because you decided to do it your way instead of the smart way. Because it was all about me, but somehow you made it all about you. That's why I lived here for eight years and never connected with anyone else. You're right, Arden. You don't owe me an explanation. I don't even want one. You owe me eight years of my life that your conviction to your own genius basically stole from me. How are you going to repay me? With secrets and half-truths and recriminations? With something that almost looks like love until I don't agree with you? With jealousy, despite your very adult protestations of the opposite? Because that doesn't quite make up for it, you know? He stops in his tracks at this outburst and slowly turns. His face is twisted in anger or anguish or maybe both. Really, Faith, he barks. What do you expect? There's so much going on that you don't understand. And on top of that, I'm only human. There's just so much I can take. Really, what do you want from me? I don't even think about the words before they fly out, unconscious, uncontrolled. Stop leaving me, I shout, my voice breaking. Love me. Tell me everything. Never leave me again. I immediately clamp my hand over my mouth, but it's too late. The words are out. I can't retrieve them. He stares. The only sound is our breathing and the rustle of the shifting Ionian sand. He cocks his head and his expression softens. Say it again, he says. I shake my head, my hand still planted firmly over my mouth. He takes a step toward me, then another, and another. He reaches out and slowly moves my hand away from my lips. Say it again, he repeats, his tone gentle. Faith Feathergrass, what do you want from me? I can barely see his face as my eyes are brimming with tears. His hand slips down to my waist. I let out a sigh and repeat in a whisper, Love me. Tell me everything. Never leave me again. He wraps his arms around me then and presses his lips to mine with an undeniable explosive urgency. I lose track of everything else as I respond to him, wrapping my arms around his neck and pressing myself against him, drinking him in, drinking in every second of this as though it might not ever come again. When we finally separate, he keeps me pulled close to him and whispers, I loved you ten years ago on Homeworld, but it's nothing compared to the way I love you now. I will tell you everything, tonight. I'll never leave you again, even if you threaten me with Fallon March's firearm. Then we kiss again, and again, and again. And for the first time in eight years, I can finally breathe. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.